We are experiencing a clash of civilizations right now in cannabis. Generally speaking, the heritage of cannabis is sharing. We've always shared cannabis flowers and seeds and insight on how to grow. At the center of cannabis culture is the whole idea of puff, puff, pass, and not to bogart the joint. While certainly there were some folks who may not have wanted you to circulate their special cut of some strain or another, the vast majority of time, cannabis folks shared whatever they had because we were all sharing in the oppression of the government through prohibition. Now, though, the emerging licensed cannabis market is based on ownership, extravagant packaging, and intellectual property. This is a very significant change. And I won't say that the schism is within the cannabis community. I will say that it's within the cannabis industry. Because again, generally, those who are seeing the green rush as a quick way to grab it all are often outsiders coming in, or longtime insiders working with newly accessible outside capital investment. And we all know how corrupting sudden access to piles of cash can be. One of the ways that companies are trying to take advantage of the young infrastructure of the cannabis industry is by filing exceptionally broad patents and daring for anyone to try to take them on because few people have the depth of pockets to take them on. Certainly, I'm making some pretty big generalizations here, but if you're watching the cannabis scene evolve, you know that on the whole, I am right. Certainly, I know some newcomers to cannabis who have their heart in the right place. And it's also certainly true that some of the heritage folks were not all that kind. Intellectual property is legal, though, and you either are or are not filing for an overbroad patent. You do not accidentally lawyer up and file a patent that pretty much says you invented an entire product category. It is not like accidentally bogarting the joint while talking too much before passing it. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. This month, we're giving away prize packs of the endomycorrhizal inoculant from Dynamike. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. Today, my guest is plant scientist and patent attorney, Dale Hunt. Dale has extensive experience with patent protection, with a technical emphasis in life sciences like cellular biology, genetics, genomics, immunology, microbiology, molecular biology, pharmaceuticals, protein engineering, stem cells, transgenics, agriculture, plant genetics, plant patents, and plant variety protection, amongst a bunch of whole other, bunch of other areas. Dale also has experience with patent portfolio management and strategy advice, international intellectual property matters, intellectual property due diligence, and licensing. He pretty much does it all. Having started as a botanist and plant geneticist, Dale continued his study of plant biology at the cellular and molecular level, completing a PhD at UC San Diego. Dale then went on to UC Berkeley for law school. Dale has spoken at Emerald Cup as a panel expert on cannabis patents, and Dale is also a pretty great all-around guy. His law firm is called Plant and Planet, if that tells you anything. Today, we're going to talk in detail about two of the most hotly discussed cannabis patents that presently exist, and what breeders and cannabis lovers everywhere can do to help support open access to cannabis genetics. Welcome to the show, Dale. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
So let's jump right into it. And and even though we've done quite a few shows about uh, cannabis patenting uh, at this point, I think it's really important to bring people up to the now in the difference between plat patents versus use patents. Because a lot of people who are new to this topic of cannabis patents, they kind of just picture them all in one big bucket. Um, but since we're going to be talking about both plant and use patents today, I think it's good to get us right on the same page of what the difference are between those. So, so would you start there, please? Yes, I'd be happy to. So I think the easiest way to think about how to distinguish these things is to think about the fact that a plant uh, selection, a plant variety, a cultivar can be seen as a unique thing, a unique uh, uh, result of creative effort by a plant breeder, or it can be seen as an invention. Um, that has lots of different applications. And really, they're both true. But the reason I set it up that way is that a plant patent is meant to cover the plant as a unique thing, and it protects against copying it. And so the, the best analogy that exists in intellectual property is to say that a plant patent is a lot like a copyright on a plant variety. It only protects against direct copying. It doesn't protect against similarity. It doesn't protect against independent derivation of something even with the same parents, it only protects clonal copying of that exact genotype as well as its harvested material. Um, in contrast, a utility patent is, it can cover the same, the same underlying plant variety, but it treats it like an invention that you can use in a lot of different ways and that you can potentially claim in a lot of different ways. So what I mean by that is, uh, with a utility patent, one of your claims, and, and I should just stop and explain, a patent claim is like a fence around your invention. It's it's the definition of the boundaries between what you invented and what still is out there um, outside the scope of your coverage. And so, when you're doing a utility patent, you can claim you can claim your invention any way you want, as long as you can demonstrate to the patent examiner that it is new and it's not obvious and that it has utility and that it's not outside of what's called patentable subject matter. So if I treat my plant variety as an invention, one of the claims I could write would be the uh, cannabis plant uh, or uh, plant, uh, yeah, okay, a cannabis plant um, typified by, uh, I'm not finding the best words for it right now, but a cannabis plant typified by the seeds that are on deposit under accession XYZ, or cannabis plants related to the seeds that are on deposit. And if you do it this way, you do need to make a seed deposit. But then that, so that could be claim one is defining the plant based upon the deposit. The next claim could be something like progeny of the plants of claim one. Another claim could be an extract made from the plants of claim one or claim two. So an extract made from that variety or from its progeny you could have a claim to a method of breeding cannabis comprising having the clay, the plant of claim one as one of the parents. Now what this does is it makes it so that you can uh, protect that variety a lot more broadly than just straight up clonal copying. You can protect, uh, you can, well, you can maintain exclusivity as to the right to breed with that plant if you care to, if that's how you want to claim it. You can have, uh, control over the extracts, uh, who can make extracts, and, and so on. And 
again, it's you think about the, each of these claims as a fence around the the property of your invention, and so there's nothing inherently right or wrong about either one of these approaches. Plant patents are a little less expensive and faster to grant. Utility patents uh, do take a, a longer process to uh, persuade the examiner that each one of these claims is actually uh, worthy of, of patent protection. But in both cases, they're really going to be focused upon the, the variety that the breeder uh, developed. And so in both cases, it's, I, in my opinion, it's well within the right of the breeder to, to protect that kind of uh, invention or that kind of development. Right on. Um, I, I actually never really thought about the idea of, of a breeder having a choice, whether which one they wanted to pursue. I didn't realize that there was so much overlap. I thought it was either clearly going to be a, pa a plant patent or it was clearly going to be a use patent. But really, there's a lot of overlap and, and, and how you'd file contains a lot of strategy about what you expect your challenges to look like. And that's very true. And um, I actually wrote a blog about this topic because it came up so much. And I wanted to, people to be able to understand kind of the analytical pathway you go down uh, to decide what kind of IP protection you need for your, for your plant variety. Uh, the blog is titled something like, Let's Talk About Reproduction and How You Will Get Paid. <laughs> and um, I have all my blogs on plantlaw.com. Uh, but the, the point of that blog and the point of the analysis is that if you are going to protect your plants, uh, if you're going to sell clones, let's say, um, you want to be able to control who is, who's allowed to make clones. And if that's how you're going to make your money, you need a plant patent. And you also need more than that because you still need, uh, uh, you need to control, you know, you need to, to be careful about who makes the clones and who sells them because it's so easy to go out and copy a, a, a plant and make more clones that the patent will give you the right to stop from someone from making those clones if you're willing to litigate against them and if you even find out about them. But it's always best if you're selling clones to uh, only work with someone that you really trust to make the clones and to restrict what's done with the clones afterwards. So, for example, maybe you've got a variety that has just that just is a great flower quality. And you want that to be as accessible to people as possible. You want it to be in a lot of dispensaries. And so you want there to be a lot of harvested material that's available for, uh, for commercial access. But you don't really want somebody to just grab a little bit of your propagating material and start to compete with you. That's the whole reason you got a patent in the first place. And so if you're selling clones only so that other people can propagate and uh, and sell harvested material, that's great. But you should restrict, even then, you should restrict what they can do with those clones. Um, uh, and uh, that, that gets into some other complicated areas that are probably beyond what we should go into today. Um, but I'm happy to explain those in more detail with, uh, if anyone's interested. Uh, so, okay, that's one thing. If you're selling clones, you've got to go with a plant patent because that's, well, that's one thing you can do and it's a sim simpler option. But if you're selling seeds, it's really important to understand that a plant patent won't even protect that hmm. because the plant patent only protects uh, direct clonal progeny. It does not protect seed progeny. So you're, really your only choice if you're selling seeds is a utility patent if it's a high THC variety or if it's uh, industrial hemp seeds, that's also uh, something that you can protect 
through the USDA Plant Variety Protection Act. Um, that's called the Plant Variety Protection Certificate. And I'm just going to uh, stop here to explain that the rest of the world is different. Sometimes I get, <laughs> I was actually challenged by someone who said, you're giving bad advice. You should tell everybody to seek UPOV type protection. Well, UPOV is an acronym for, it's a, for a French, uh, uh, f the French title of this convention, but it's basically the English version is the International Convention on Protection of Plant Varieties. And it establishes plant breeders' rights that you can uh, apply for in any member of this convention. And uh, those plant breeders' rights are very, um, uh, they cover both seeds and clones, but they have some exemptions that make them a little bit problematic. Uh, anyone can breed with uh, something that is covered by a UPOV certificate as they, there's this express uh, breeder's exemption so that um, if you obtain uh, UPOV rights, but someone has access, has legitimate access to your plants, you can't stop them from using that plant to breed other plants. Now, some people may say that's great. That's a great result. That's great public policy. It enhances the diversity of uh, what people have access to for breeding. But um, anyway, so the rest of my, the, the bottom line here is the rest of the world is different in the way it protects uh, plant varieties. The U.S. is unique in having really three different approaches. The USDA PVP approach, which is like UPOV in the rest of the world, the uh, USPTO plant patent, which is like a copyright, and the USPTO utility patent, which treats the plant like any other invention. Right on. Wow. Well, thank you for that explanation. I can I can already hear the breeders strategizing in their head <laughs> on the other <laughs> side of the signal. Um, and for folks who are listening, because you yourself are a breeder and you actually have to think through this strategy for yourself, um, stick around for the second um, set of the show where we're going to be talking with Dale in detail about um, about what actions that you can take to actually uh, protect yourself. But right now, during the first set, I want to I want to shift with you, Dale, because um, now that we generally have an idea that the the area that we're talking about, um, I would like you to give us uh, some good detail on uh, the two probably most talked about patents that that cannabis folks especially to heritage growers um are are calling over broad and and uh, certainly p these names have been coming up a ton since the phylos debacle but you know people have been discussing the the biotech llc patent for a few years now um, i give credit to amanda chicago lewis when she wrote that story in rolling stone that kind of made it apparent to everybody what was going on and, and kind of brought it up to the public consciousness. But people talk about that and you know how people talk on the internet. My God, all these people <laughs> who have either wrong information or they or an incomplete set of information, but everybody's got an opinion, right? And so I figure as uh, both a plant scientist and a patent attorney, um, you are going to be able to offer us, you know, some rare insight into this. So let, let's, the first of the two I want to talk about is the biotech LLC patent. So um, if you would like take us from square one, explain what the, the patent is, um, kind of the two sides of the debate and, and share your thoughts if you would. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, this patent is it's definitely a utility patent, and it's it's there's actually a family of patents that have uh, similar strategies to cover related subject matter. So I'll just talk about the um, 
the one that gets talked about the most, which is, uh, let's see, I'll get you the number of the patent. It's, um, hmm, where'd it go? It's patent number 9370164. And anyone who wants to follow along at home can actually Google that, and they'll probably be able to get a copy of the patent right in front of them. So it's 9370164. And actually, there are a few of them that are like this, but uh, this is a good one to talk about. So you know how I talked about the fact that when you have a, a utility patent, you can claim it any way, you can claim your invention any way you want, as long as you can persuade the examiner that the uh, that what you've claimed is new and not obvious, and adequately described and falls within allowable subject matter. Um, and I should explain what that means. The allowable subject matter thing is comes from Section 101 of the Patent Statute, and it just says that. Um, well, the court interpretation of Section 101 is that there are certain things that are just not patentable, including laws of nature and products of nature. And so uh, we can get into more detail about that when we talk about the, the next patent. But in this case, this the, the kinds of claims in this patent are not, um, not restricted by Section 101. And so the patent examiner would look at the claim and ask, is this new? Is this obvious? And has it been adequately described? And the patent examiner clearly uh, was reached uh, the an answer to a yes answer to all three of those questions. I'd like to walk through the claim, and then we can talk about whether that yes answer was uh, was appropriate. That sounds great. But, okay, so claim one, which is uh, typical, and it's the only claim we'll spend any time on because this has a lot of claims, and it would get tedious. But it, it claims a, pan, a cannabis plant or an asexual clone of a plant or a plant part or a tissue or a cell um, that produces a female inflorescence. So basically it's a female cannabis plant, um, and it has at least 3% THC and at least 3% CBD and a terpene profile that is not myrcene dominant and a terpene oil content greater than 1%. Now there's some other uh, other language in the claim that just talks about what the other terpenes are. That's pretty standard list of terpenes as far as I've been told. And then um, it also talks about how those terpenes are measured. It's measured by gas chromatography. Uh, and then the last phrase is, wherein a representative sample of seed producing said plants has been deposited under, and then there's a, a list of accession numbers. So they, they made several seed deposits as representative samples. Uh, what's important about this claim is that this is what I would call and what other people have called a, a chemotype claim. It's not, it's not limited to any of those particular samples. That's why they deposited multiple samples and said it's just representative. So this, this claim would cover, uh, by most people's interpretation, and I've got to stop and just say I'm not, pro I'm not providing any legal advice to anyone. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is my educational analysis kind of, of the way patent law works as applied to an exemplary claim. Uh, if anyone needs legal advice on this, I, get a, I dig a lot, lot deeper and provide legal advice in a way that is uh, much, much more detailed. So no one should rely on this as any kind of legal advice. Uh, this is educational only. All right, so what I've been told by lots of people 
is that um, this chemotype is one that has been around for a long time, that people can point to examples of other cannabis plants that pre-existed the filing date. And let's go back and look at that filing date so we can be clear about this. The filing date of this patent uh, is um, July, let's see, uh, sorry, uh, it's, well, the, yeah, the filing date is July 17th, 2015, and the earliest date that it claims back to, which matters, uh, the, the, the patent uh, eligibility analysis is always a function of different dates, and then was there anything before those dates that was out there in the public domain and was known? So the earliest date that this is entitled to under any theory is going to be uh, March 15th, 2013. So back to the kind of the public discussion of this, there are people, uh, lots of people who say that this particular chemotype uh, pre-existed 2013. They can point to other uh, strains or cultivars of cannabis that are at least 3% THC, at least 3% CBD, and, and are not mercine dominant, um, and that have greater than 1% terpene oil. Now, I want to emphasize that I haven't, I haven't independently analyzed any cultivars, and I haven't fact-checked anyone's assertions about this. So from here on out, this is a discussion of the way the patent law would work if those assertions were true. Um, and this does expose one of the fundamental problems with, with cannabis patents, uh, any kind of cannabis patents with any kind of breadth. Um, and that is that when the examiner is looking at this claim and trying to decide if it's new or non-obvious, they don't just put their finger in the wind and, and wonder. They have a particular procedure that they go through, and they do this for biotech patents, medical patents, uh, airplane engines, um, electronic devices, anything at all that, you, that you're claiming to have invented. What they do is they look at the claim, and then they do a search involving keywords and categories to try to find the closest thing they can find to this claim. And they look in, uh, in in other industries, they will have, you know, at least tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of moderately relevant academic papers to look at in, in the uh, overall database of what's already known, what's in the public knowledge. Uh, so they'll they'll do a search. If it's a biotech case, they might they might really have access to well, they would easily have access to over a hundred thousand different academic papers and probably a lot more than that. Um, as well as they, uh, they would also search all of the prior patent literature, and they look for whatever is closest to that claim, and then they use that as a basis for a rejection of the claim. And it's almost always a case that a claim will be rejected the first time around because it's almost it's kind of the examiner's job to explain uh, why the or well to to say that the the claim isn't allowable for these reasons, and then put it on the applicant to explain why those reasons are incorrect. Now, the reason I'm going into all this detail is that suppose now you're an examiner uh, handling a, a, the first ever chemotype patent application for, a, for cannabis. You go through your normal procedure. You look in all the academic literature. But how much academic literature is there on this topic? Uh, there's a little, but not very much. Not remotely, not, not even orders of magnitude within the same amount of literature that is typically available for a patent search. Then you look at all the prior patent literature, and <clears throat> um, somewhat surprisingly, 
to some people. The USPTO has been handling and granting cannabis-related patents all the way back to the 40s. But this was the first time anyone had tried to claim uh, a chemotype. So the examiner can't just say, this seems like it's too broad. The examiner has to have a basis for rejecting the claim. The examiner looks in the so-called prior art, that's the, the whole public database of prior uh, literature, academic literature or patents, and can't really find anything. Uh, or maybe find something that's kind of close, but not, not all the way close, or maybe find something that looks like it, but whatever. Um, the, the problem in utility patents with cannabis is that there is just a, a, a complete disconnect <clears throat> between a lot of prior commercial activity. We know that people have been enjoying chemovars and chemotypes for a long time, right? Uh, but no one was documenting it. People were going out of their way not to document it. And so the, the robust literature that usually corresponds to a robust uh, commercial environment doesn't exist for cannabis. Now, the result of that is that the examiner looking at this didn't have access to all of the commercial activity, to a record of all the commercial activity that happened before legalization. And so, in a way, you, you, you think if the examiner's tools for giving a rejection are prior publications, the examiners just don't have the tools to adequately examine some especially broad uh, patent applications relating to cannabis. So, so Dale, before yeah. you before you go further, let me give voice to what a lot of people are probably thinking, which is like, what the f? Like, what you just described is is a mess because there are two things that we know true. Number one, there were clearly chemovars that had more than three percent THC and three percent CBD in the market, and while myrcene dominant, sure that limits because myrcene is clearly the most popular terpene dominant chemovar out there. There are absolutely plenty of chemovars that are not myrcene dominant. So if, if, if those are your two most limiting factors and really you only need above 3% on THC and CBD and above 3% and, uh, 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 excuse me, and not myrcene dominant, I can hear people out there feeling like me, like we know those exist. Of course those existed. We, we, you know, however, the second part is, is where is the evidence? Cause we've had to be in the underground for all this time, or we didn't have analytic labs or, um, or people have these plants and they have not filed them uh, to, to get a timestamp on them. It's, it's astonishing, right? I mean, I, you, I like how you are approaching it um, neutral and sans emotion to give us the data point. But I can, since I'm not the attorney, <laughs> I can say what the hell, right? Because right. we know damn well that these plants existed, period. And and and. I now understand more when I when I talk to other experts, what they often will say is, ah, the you know, the USPTO didn't want to put in the work for the research. So they granted the patent and they figured that we'll all kick it around in court for a, a few decades and then it'll get sorted out. But they didn't want to be in the middle of it. Now, what you're saying, though, kind of lets them off the hook to me a little bit until I hear what you say, because I'm like, oh, if this <laughs> stuff has to exist in a, in a searchable form in the patent library or in a searchable form on Google, well, hell, uh, I might have a hard time finding that myself. And so now I'm like, all right. So, so before you continue on, what's your thoughts on the, 
I don't know, let's say the attitude of the patent and trade office. Did they, <laughs> did they not do their job or did they do their job? But because we are uniquely talking about a plant that has been prohibited, it's not their fault. There's nothing. And this is going to have to play out in court because the prior law doesn't exist. I will start by saying I'm no apologist for the patent office. Um, I, I've worked with the patent office for 23 years, and um, there are good examiners and bad examiners at the patent office, just like there are in any organization. But if the examiners ever try to take a shortcut or do the safe thing, it is to just refuse to allow a claim. Um, I've, I've, uh, in addition to my my practice in cannabis, I've worked a lot in biotech and and uh, cancer and other things like that, and. I've certainly done battle with examiners uh, for years trying to get some some claims to a cancer treatment uh, allowed. They were broad claims, but the examiner couldn't find anything that was right on point, but was still very, very hesitant to allow the claims because uh, he didn't want to get second guessed in the patent office. And he certainly didn't want to have his, his uh, patent associated with some ugly litigation over its validity or associated with, um, uh, you know, become kind of almost a household uh, topic, a dinner table topic about how the examiner didn't do his job. Mm -hmm. And so my, my answer to people who say that the patent office just, just punted on this is that um, notwithstanding my frustrations with many patent examiners, they are much more likely to just say no than to say yes, but they have to have some remote basis for saying no, um, and it has to be defensible. And if they just don't have any literature they can cite, they can't just have a feeling, and they can't. There's a limit to how much independent investigation they can do. One thing they can do, and that I want to encourage the patent office to do more, is to actually put the applicants. Um, on the spot with what are called requests for information. And um, sometimes when a patent examiner believes that there must be something out there that um, they haven't been able to find, but that must still be out there, they can, they can ask, they can issue a request for information. So for example, uh, I was handling a plant patent on a mango in Australia. And the examiner couldn't find any evidence that the plant itself had been commercially available, but he did find something in uh, in a fruit catalog that listed this that the the fruit itself is having been commercially available. And he said, "I'm putting it on you to tell me on the record whether those trees were ever sold to anyone. Were the trees ever publicly available? That's what you're trying to patent. And I see evidence. This evidence gives me enough to ask you to put it to say on the record." what was actually going on, that how did this fruit get into commercial availability? And so we had to investigate that, and we were able to supply enough information to make it clear that uh, that while the fruit had been available, the plants hadn't been, and, and that mattered. Uh, I won't go into all the details of that. But it is up to the examiner if there's any shred of, of indication that something uh, may have gone on that, that they just didn't that don't have access to in their database – they can uh, force the applicant to to state on the record what they know or to characterize the historical situation. And I think what happened in this case is there's so little about prior uh, 
existence. There's so little published or accessible information about prior existence of this chemotype, especially, and we should emphasize this, this, especially when the examiner was looking at this, there's been a lot of information published since then about people reacting to this patent. But when the examiner had this in front of uh, him or her, they didn't even have enough to issue a request for information. So in the future, um, I'm hoping that uh, patent examiners looking at these kinds of things, well, what I'd really like to see is um, have people be uh, less inclined to do what are, people are calling the equivalent of a, of a land grab or a gold rush on broad patent claims, to have people uh, seek claims that are more narrowly directed to what they actually bred and created. Um, but I would also like the examiners to feel more uh, equipped to issue these requests for information and say, all right, I can't find anything in the prior art, but I know that there was a whole closet industry or, a, or a, an underground industry here. And so I want you to show, to tell me how you characterize prior unpublished commercial activity in this space. And that doesn't make the applicant, that doesn't give the applicant a duty to do an inve in independent investigation, but it does put them in a position where they have to say on the record what they know about that. Why, why don't and you think the patent office asked that? I think they just didn't know enough about the industry. You know, the patent examiners probably are not the same ones that, uh, uh, that were really familiar with a great variety of chemotypes from their own personal use or their own personal experience in the industry. And so I don't think it, it stood out that that was um, something that was even likely to exist. Um, in, 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 this patent, in this patent examiner's experience. Now, this is a few years ago, and there's been, as we all know, there's been a hell of a lot of talk about it since then, and people do have the same reaction that you had, which is, of course this isn't new. Maybe it's never been published, but of course it's not new. And that's what I've heard a lot of people say. Um, but I think the patent examiner just didn't, uh, didn't have that same kind of um, instant reaction um, and didn't have a real basis for issuing requests for information. Plus, I will say requests for information are pretty rare. They usually come when you find when you find a document that points you in a direction and just doesn't get you all the way there to a to a valid rejection. And so then the examiner says, "I'm going to rely on this for a rejection unless you can convince me that I shouldn't." Um, so I could go into a lot more detail about this, but but basically, I I. To, to answer your your original question, I don't think this was a case of the patent office taking the easy way out. I think it was them working with the tools they had and recognizing that there was a limit to what they could do and not having any kind of genuine legal basis for rejecting this. Um, they went ahead and allowed it. But the other part of what you said really is true. It, this is going to play itself out in the public discourse like this. And if they ever choose to enforce this patent, against uh, an alleged infringer, then I think there will probably be all kinds of people in the industry that will come forward and say, okay, well, here's, here, here's a cultivar that we can show existed prior to 2013 that has this, this uh, chemical profile. Again, I'm not saying, I, I haven't done my own investigation, but you know, I've heard your reaction lots of times. And so if that's factually accurate, probably multiple people will come forward and defend whoever gets sued for patent infringement and say, here's our evidence that this claim doesn't meet the novelty requirement and therefore is not valid.
You know, that's really interesting that what, what they've got essentially is an overbroad patent that exists unless they were to try to defend it, at which case everything would be uh, put into question again. And, and I don't know, it's odd, the idea that there's an unenforceable patent. It's like their, their best strategy may be just to not try to, but then what value does it have? It's a very interesting legal position. It's certainly gotten them a lot of press. <laughs> it's, I wouldn't say it's all good press, obviously. but no. um, I actually haven't it, heard any of it be good. <laughs> I haven't either. But there, there are some other nuances that, to um, patent strategy that they did employ that, you know, we've, we, we've been talking about as a very broadest claim. And it sounds like that broadest claim is quite vulnerable to a, an attack for lack of novelty. They have a series of narrower claims, and maybe there's some narrower claim that actually would define the invention specifically enough that it would be new and would hold up in court. And then the question is, would there be anybody out there who's infringing that particular claim? Because it would be narrower and a lot harder to infringe. And that's just, you know, that's a matter for um, a matter to be sorted out when there are specific facts on the table. One other thing I'll say, though, is that this is. This kind of risk of your own patent's validity when you sue someone for patent infringement is that's that's um, standard in patent litigation. I've worked with lots of clients where um, before they decided whether to assert their patent, they did kind of a double check uh, to see what are the what are the greatest the most viable challenges to validity that someone could pose for our patent. Do we really believe our patent is valid? Because if we don't, we don't want to spend um, millions of dollars litigating it, and we don't want to come out of that process with an invalidated patent. And so um, in, in, in the real world, in kind of more uh, uh, mature, established industries, um, people recognize that getting an overbroad patent is mostly a waste of money because you can't enforce it, um, or at least you're really risking losing it when you enforce it. Um, sometimes though, uh, people will pursue broad patents in the hopes that they can become part of a licensing scheme, that they can make it more attractive to take a, a somewhat troublesome, but not prohibitively expensive license, uh, just as insurance against ever having to defend yourself from, from, uh, a patent infringement suit. So, you know, th there are a lot of things that someone can do with a patent besides winning a case in court. And I, I am not privy to what the strategy was behind this, but I will say that I've heard your reaction a lot of times as to the novelty. Now, I did, because I got so many questions about chemotype patents generally and about people, you know, coming up with something that's really new and then wanting to claim more than just their own uh, genetic developments, that I, I did write a blog about that too. So if you go to plantlaw.com, I have a lot of detail about um, what it would take to actually get a valid chemotype patent and why it's probably a bad idea to even try. <laughs> right on. So, so, um, so before we go to our first commercial, Dale, I know that I, uh, I changed your path and took you down this rabbit hole. So, um, <laughs> you know, obviously we're not going to cover all the, all the vagarities of the biotech LLC patent today. Um, but is there anything that is in your notes where you're like, I need to get this in before we go to commercial and come back and talk about United Cannabis? No, I think that pretty much covers it. It's, uh, I'll just kind of sum it up to say that um, uh, it's, it's 
a matter of I think everyone who dislikes this patent should almost do their civic duty to identify whatever evidence they're personally aware of that would um, that would that would fall within the scope of these claims. Because if this ever if this ever does get enforced, and if it is as invalid as people say it is, then there will be um, someone who needs help. And so, if people in the community are outraged by this patent, the call to action would be: document what you know that that was prior to 2013, and be ready to step up and help your neighbor. Uh, uh, I think that's that's a good call to action. I think that's great, Dale. It's it, not only is it uh, crowdsourcing uh, from within our community, but it's also citizen science kind of stuff, and and we're big supporters of both. So, so if any of you have got evidence of of these chemovars that existed prior to the 2013, um, save that evidence uh, before it is lost to time. So uh, with that, we're going to take our first short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is plant scientist and patent attorney Dale Hunt. Growing cannabis in greenhouses is taking over the cannabis industry. An efficient and effective blend of sunshine-grown terpene profiles and the controlled environment of indoor, greenhouses can be the best of both worlds. For many greenhouse operators, though, building their greenhouse before gaining insight into how cannabis greenhouses differ from ornamental crops can be the start of a world of hurt. Eric Brandstad and his team at Greenhouse Advisory Group have the experience and technical know-how to help you avoid these pitfalls. Eric Brandstad has been helping cannabis growers find locations, design, build, and equip their greenhouses for over a decade, first starting in Northern California, but expanding over the last five years to helping clients throughout the world. He has an impeccable reputation for both depth of knowledge and kindness in communication. You can hear Eric explain some of the challenges facing cannabis greenhouses and how to overcome them in episode number 41 of the Shaping Fire podcast. No matter where I go in the country, good people with smart backgrounds still are making the mistake of building without knowing cannabis, and it causes them to burn through capital and time fast. Everyone has their own failure point. For some, it is improper ventilation planning. For others, it is surface temperatures of the building or the plant's leaves or both. Some folks that build their greenhouse from scratch make really basic errors like placement of the greenhouse on the property or not understanding the natural environment where the greenhouse sits. Some have even built a decent greenhouse but are inefficient in their deployment of light deprivation techniques and never really hit their target yields. It's great when you learn from your mistakes, but it's even better when you learn from the mistakes of others. When you bring on Greenhouse Advisory Group, you will learn from the mistakes of their many clients, and you'll take advantage of the best practices developed by Eric Brandstad over his years of working with clients just like you. From location development to choosing a builder and tricking out your new greenhouse or retrofitting or rescuing your failing greenhouse, Eric will help you through it. Visit greenhouseadvisorygroup.com to learn more and connect with Eric and his team. That's Greenhouse Advisory Group. As a listener of Shaping Fire, you already understand the importance of living soil when growing cannabis. When you have active microbe communities in your substrate, you go way beyond simply fertilizing with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Having active microorganisms in your substrate supports vigorous plant growth throughout the plant's root zone, making for higher yields and thriving flowers. 
Mammoth pea is the first organically derived microbial inoculant that focuses on your plant's nutrient cycling processes to release soil phosphorus and other micronutrients from their bound forms, making them more available to the plant. Increased levels of phosphorus will also keep internodes shorter and focus your plant's energy on bud production. Not only that, but the microbes act as a defense shield for the plant's rhizosphere by outcompeting potentially harmful pathogenic microbes. Pretty cool, right? Mammoth pea not only unlocks the nutrients in your soil, but it also helps protect your plant from disease. Mammoth pea's beneficial bacteria act like microbioreactors, continually producing enzymes that release nutrients. Mammoth pea was developed at a U.S. university and has been extensively tested by Colorado growers and independent laboratories. Mammoth pea is proven to increase growth and enhance blooming. One of the great things about supplementing with microorganisms is that they won't compete with whatever fertilizer program you're already running. Simply dose on top of your fertilizer schedule for increased benefits. To learn more and to find out where you can buy Mammoth Pea near you, check out their website at www.mammothmicrobes.com. Partner with microorganisms to create beautiful, thriving cannabis. Mammoth Pea. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is plant scientist and patent attorney, Dale Hunt. So I thought we were going to get through both of the uh, the the troublesome patents in the first set, but uh, there's a lot more to the biotech uh, to talk about than I thought. And so let's go ahead and start wading into the United Cannabis patent, um, just like we did the biotech LLC. Uh, So Dale, if you would take us through a a general explanation so people understand the context of what we're talking about, and then dive into the two sides of the debate so people can really grok what's going on, that would be really appreciated. You bet. So this time we're talking about U.S. patent number 9730911. So if anyone wants to Google that and pull it up, again, it's 9730911. And uh, this is a patent that was granted to United Cannabis. Uh, claim one is really short and really easy to understand. So I'll read it uh, verbatim. A liquid cannabinoid formulation wherein at least 95% of the total cannabinoids is tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, or THCA. That's it. So they're claiming to have invented, um, and I don't actually have the priority date here. I could I could get that before during the next commercial break. But they're claiming to have invented, I think it was before about 2015, to be the first people to have ever had a liquid cannabinoid formulation that is at least 95% THCA. And you know, in the last one, we only looked at claim one, but here it's important to emphasize that they also have independent claims uh, five. If you're following along at home, look at claim five, claim 10, claim 16, claim 20, and claim 25, and here's why. Um, they all have the same phrasing, a liquid cannabinoid formulation, where it, wherein at least 95% of the total cannabinoid is, and then uh, claim one is THCA. Claim five is THC. Claim 10 is CBD. Claim 16 is a combination of THCA and CBD, CBDA. Claim 20 is THC and CBD together. And claim 20 is uh, CBD, CBN, and THC. So what that means is these this patent applicant... Um, went to the patent office claiming to have been the first to ever have 
in their possession to have to have made a liquid cannabinoid formulation that was 95% of one thing as compared to all the other cannabinoids in the mix. Now, what's important to understand is that the way you interpret this claim, it doesn't mean that it's 95% pure. It could be, it's any liquid. It's any liquid that has cannabinoids in it where 95% of the cannabinoids in it um, uh, are one thing, the thing that's claimed, and the other 5% or less is some other cannabinoid. Um, let's poke at that for a second. Yes, um, let's. So, so, so the, the two things that stand out for me are, um, number one, would this include a solution that was um, 95% THC isolate and then 5% vehicle solution? Yes, because that would make it 100% uh, THC, and the claim is at least 95%. I see. So it's it's um, it's not ninety five percent of the total solution, right? That's okay. exa- that's exactly it. That that whatever huh. else is in the solution. That's what makes this claim really uh, breathtakingly broad. Yeah. Um, is that it doesn't matter what else is in the solution. It doesn't matter how clean the solution is. At least by a conventional interpretation of the claim, the plain language of this claim, it is just that. Of the total cannabinoids, at least 95% is whatever they oh, call out. Oh, that clarification is huge, right? It's not right. – because like at first when you were reading it, I'm like, okay, well, <clears throat> you know, my, my specialty is not extraction, right? But um, – and, and when I'm, you know, seeing tests for analytics for dab oils and RSOs and things like that, you know, they'll, they'll float between 55 and 85 pretty easily. Well, again, 95% for an extracted oil is pretty high in, in any situation. But the fact that, the, that what it describes is, oh, not the oil, how it comes out of the plant, but any fluid that 95% of the cannabinoids are one of our target cannabinoids that suddenly makes it from huh curious to holy crap laughable yeah and and that's it's it's so strange credulity that i do urge people to google it and read the claim for yourself and i'll i'll read it one more time in the context of what you just said it's a liquid cannabinoid formulation so it's just a formulation in a liquid state that has some cannabinoids in it a liquid cannabinoid formulation wherein at least 95% of the total cannabinoids is whatever they call out, is THC, THCA, CBD. They have a series of claims that, that claim each one of these as a separate invention. That of, so, the, of the total cannabinoids is a major phrase right there. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. It sure is. So um, obviously, again, I, I will point out that I haven't done any chemical analysis on this. I haven't even done any any literature research. All I have all I'm doing is processing the reactions of people who have firsthand experience in the industry and their reaction is so far I am not exaggerating to say it's uniformly what the hell or something like that. It's yeah. it's uniform incredulity that uh, that this claim um, is would be a post 2015 invention and didn't exist before that. So Dale, I, I, I yeah. know, I know that you roll with these like serious patent people and plant science people, <laughs> because I know you're talking with them like on stage and before you go on stage and, 
And do you know what their position is on this? How, you know, what their fallback is? How, how would they respond to this? Do you know that? Well, what I hear, I mean, for some reason, maybe just because it came first or maybe because it's it's actually into chemotypes and people care about their their chemotype, their their, their chemotype profiles. I still pick up a lot more uh, um, upset and outrage and, and stress and frustration about the biotech LLC uh, patent family. But um, but when people do talk about this one and focus on this one, it's just kind of a um, it's an almost mutely astonished reaction that this just can't be um again i'm passing along their their reaction to it and i think maybe it's it's that um mutely astonished either because it it, it creates a sense of of complete defeat or it creates a sense of okay well this there's just no way this can stand in any in any just situation and what's interesting about this is this patent has been asserted. This is in active litigation in Colorado right now. Do tell. Okay. So um, you can sue a, a group called the Pure Hemp Collective and uh, sued them on the basis of some CBD formulations that they were selling. And uh, this case, I believe it was initiated last July, give or take. And um, uh so, you know, then there was a little bit of an outcry about, all right, what's going to happen here? Uh, is the court even going to hear this? Because one of the questions before this case happened was, will a court even, will a federal court even permit patent litigation to proceed if the subject matter of the patent claims uh, overlaps with something that's federally illegal? Yeah. Um, some people thought it would just get thrown out. Now, there, there are at least two reasons. Um, well, there's one really good counterpoint I've heard, which is, all right, maybe some of these claims cover THC, just like, well, like claim one <laughs> and uh, claim five and claim 10 uh, and so on. Not claim 10, claim 16. But um, the, the product that was being sold commercially was not federally legal. It was a CBD product. And so, you know, the people who want to maintain hope that a federal court would never uh, entertain patent enforcement litigation over something that was all about THC, they can still hold that hope out because in this case, a THC product is not the accused product. It's a CBD product. And that might make a difference. The other part of it, though, is just that um, I would think, you know, the argument I would make in favor of a court hearing a case like this is, look, this is a federal agency that granted this right. It's a federal right, and you're a federal court, so do your job. Right. Um, and in this case, if if we're to believe everyone that says that these claims just aren't new, the job of the court would be to hear all the evidence and eventually to uh, find that there's enough evidence of prior commercial activity involving um, or pr basically prior public availability of liquid cannabinoid formulations that fall within the scope of these claims to invalidate the claims that were asserted. And that's that's another bit of esoterica that is worth discussing. When you sue someone for patent infringement, you typically say that they're infringing claims X, Y, and Z. You call out the specific claims that, they're, that, that you're accusing them of infringing. And then they have a right to 
uh, petition for declaratory judgment by the court that those claims are invalid. But they, they can only invalidate the claims that are inserted, asserted against them. The other claims aren't, aren't in play. Okay. So the outcome of this litigation, I believe that it was just claims, um, I think it was claims 10 and 16 and 20 that were asserted because those are the claims that recite some amount of CBD in the formulation. And um, so those are the claims that would be at risk and that could be invalidated in this litigation, but that wouldn't touch uh, the other claims that were not asserted. All right, so taking this back away from the, just the generalized incredulity of, whatever. That was, <laughs> <laughs> at this point of the show, the lips aren't working as well. So, um, so we're all astonished that it was granted. But beyond that, you know, if we go back to the beginning and talk about the biotech LLC issues, part of it is where is this stuff in the historical record, right? Because everybody was underground in the medical days, things were not um, archived as, as often. And without evidence, the patent and trade office doesn't have anything to turn down a patent on. I'm thinking that we're going to run into that, that we're in the middle of that same situation now. And, and the folks who have, are, you know, are having to defend themselves against these patent claims, they're probably trying to find any kind of evidence that's out there showing pre-existing art. And that might be a really difficult thing. That's it is very difficult, and um, I think I I, I kind of talk about this topic a lot at different meetings, and uh, one of the things I say is that uh, I believe that that the patent system, the utility patent system, is going to have a problem with the um, with the so-called presumption of validity of an issued patent when it comes to to cannabis utility patents. They're going to have that problem for a generation because it's going to take a, a full generation to have an academic literature and a patent literature that is comparable, even even comparable to the kind of academic literature and patent literature that examiners usually search when they're looking for uh, looking to analyze the the uh, novelty and non-obviousness of a claim. And um, so, see, when a patent issues, the courts treat it with the so-called presumption of validity, which just means that they presume that the patent that the patent examination process was done correctly and that that the patent was issued properly. Um, and what that presumption means is that the defendant who's trying to invalidate the patent has a higher hurdle of evidence to submit in order to actually get the patent invalidated. It's not just like a 50-50, okay, you win this coin toss. You have to have what is called clear and convincing evidence of patent invalidity. And um, But I do think that this presumption of validity it, well, it's based on the, the, the idea that the patent office did its job and had the right tools to do its job. And I think that when it comes to broad cannabis utility patents, since there's essentially no prior art or you know no no significant prior art, it's it's maybe one percent or less of the prior art in other industries, the searchable, usable prior art that that is a tool of an examiner's uh, job, um, that that because of that, this presumption of validity is just much, much weaker. It has to be weaker because we know that there was, in parallel with all of this lack of, of, uh, of published literature, there was a very robust uh, commercial activity still happening. It was just not documented. Okay, so a uh, couple things. So the first thing <laughs> is, is uh, so outside of any potential American companies that might have made these products and had evidence of them being brought to market – 
How about non-U.S. companies, say like GW Pharma, who I would suggest probably had such a, had a thing that they had created in the lab, but had not brought to market. Um, how does that play out the fact that they are a British company and not an American company and the fact that they had not yet brought it to market? Uh, you're asking in terms of what what their role would be in terms of creating prior art. Yeah, correct. So, so would would this yeah. would this serum that was more than ninety five percent THC and or CBD, the fact that it just existed in the world, is prior art enough to unravel something? This yes. Well, not quite because. Uh -huh. um, the prior art has to be has to be evidence of either prior, <clears throat> excuse me, prior public public knowledge, or prior public availability. I see. And so it has to be either be a printed publication, or on sale, or somehow some kind of commercial availability. So if GW Pharma was publishing studies that involved that kind of a solution um, in the research, that would be that would count as public knowledge, right? Absolutely. Anything right. that's published is considered public knowledge. So, Dale, if if this is already being litigated right now in Colorado and and these folks are trying to defend their product against the patent claims of United Cannabis, what is the where are we at with it right now? Where are we at with that litigation? And are we starting to get a smell of how this is going to play out? Because this is a pretty big deal for the whole industry. Yeah, it really is interesting. Um, one of the things that happens when someone gets sued for patent infringement is that they have a deadline to uh, provide an answer to the complaint. And um, in the in the answer by Pure Hemp Collective, they listed all kinds of products that um, that were allegedly available here or there commercially, and that that already met the standard of being 95 plus percent uh, CBD as part of whatever other things were present in the liquid. Um, you know, so there are things that were 99% CBD in a liquid formulation or something. So they, they put all that evidence into, well, they put, they put assertions that such evidence existed into their answer. Um, but for the, all that evidence to really be considered, the case would have to go all the way to trial. Um, there are some things that can happen pre-trial, and one of those things was pretty interesting they sued for what is called summary judgment. They mo they they moved for summary judgment, partial summary judgment, um, as to uh, some of the claims uh, on the basis that what was really being uh, claimed was a product of nature and therefore unpatentable under Section 101. If you remember from the previous segment, yeah. and um, so there was because that didn't require. Um, any particular amount of evidence. It was really more of a question of, of um, objective scientific fact and applying the law to that fact. The judge was able to uh, handle that motion without seating a jury or without going all the way into trial. And um, because of some of the, the evidentiary standards and so on, um, there, there are only certain things that you can even put into a motion like that. Um, but what they, so they did ask the judge to consider whether uh, this was an unpatentable product of nature, and after both sides made their arguments, uh, the, the patent owner, you can, uh, argued that um, the product of nature that, that comes straight out of the plant is not a liquid. It's it's a soft solid, 
and you know people who've done um, uh, res rosins and and other kinds of you know crude extractions you know they they can all have their own opinion about what it is that comes out when you just what, what is really present in the trichome is it a liquid or is it a soft solid but um, the judge considered the two the two possibilities if if the judge had found it to be a liquid then it would be a product of nature it wouldn't even be patentable but the judge uh, was persuaded by this uh, by this argument instead that rather than being an actual liquid, according to the dictionary definition of liquids, it was more of a soft solid, and therefore the, what is claimed is not a product of nature. It has been altered by by human interaction. Wow. Um, so that that was that hit the newswires as some kind of a defeat for pure hemp and, and kind of a strengthening of UCAN's position. But I actually wrote a blog about that one as well and just said this is no big deal. Finding, uh, Refusing to find invalidity on this particular point is not a finding of validity of the patent. It's just a finding that, that this particular theory that, that could be advanced at this stage wasn't successful. But what we're likely to see is um, as they get further into the, the process of producing evidence and so on, if the parties don't settle, if it actually does go to trial, then Pure Hemp Collective will put all this evidence in front of a jury or in front of the judge. I don't remember if they've demanded a jury trial or if this is something that the judge will handle. But either way, the evidence will be considered. And if, if what appears to be abundant evidence that there were plenty of liquid formulations, there only even has to be one. But if there, are, if there is even one liquid formulation that falls within the scope of these claims that predated the patent, then these claims will be ruled invalid. All right. So the idea that if it, if it goes to trial is really interesting because we have been seeing all over the cannabis industry um, these big, well-funded, capitalized behemoths in the industry coming in and pushing on trademarks and, uh, and on product, pat product patents with these smaller players who just simply don't have the kind of deep pockets that it takes to defend themselves with somebody with highly paid lawyers that can go a long time. So what are we seeing in the moment as far as, as um, the hemp folks being able to even garner the resources to present a defense? Well, that is a good question. And, um, I can tell you, I've, I've looked at the court papers. I did that in, in preparation for another talk I was giving, and I, I looked in quite a bit of detail, and they, they do seem to have good representation that is doing um, uh, a, a thorough job of the defense. I don't know how they're funded. I hope that there are people that are coming to their defense if they need it. They may have had litigation insurance. So I, I don't actually know how they're affording the defense they have, and um, I I think uh, if they ever seem to be running low and, and need some help, there'd probably be people that would volunteer to step up and help them because everyone benefits. If, if, if it is true that this patent is overbroad and invalid, and again, I'm trying to be more objective about that and because I haven't looked at the evidence myself, but if it is true that there is that kind of evidence and that this patent is invalid, then having it invalidated really benefits everyone because then no one will be... Uh, 
will be getting a letter saying, uh, you need to take a license to our patent or you need to stop selling your product. That would be a public benefit. Yeah, it sounds like a good reason for a GoFundMe. <laughs> <laughs> it does. So, so how long do we expect this to uh, play out? Is this something that's going to be kicking around for a decade or is this something that's you know, going to be pretty aggressive and we'll be wrapping up here in the next you know, year or two? Well, I'm no litigation expert. Usually what I do is, is um, transactions relating to IP and helping people get patents. I've, I've walked some clients through litigation, and so I, I know about how litigation works from that perspective. But I, my general sense is that uh, different judges set different pace, different kinds of pace for the cases they handle, and that the pace of this case will be um, somewhat up to the judge and then somewhat up to just the time required to uh, gather the evidence in discovery, and then the parties, if they're negotiating some kind of a settlement, they may request uh, some kind of a continuance to to settle the case. But I would expect that this, if if it goes all the way to trial, it could drag on for another year or two. All right. I, I don't know that authoritatively, though. Yeah, right. I just just something for us to go with, right, so that we can yeah. all have a better understanding. So. All right. So before we go to our second commercial, you said something and I didn't want to interrupt your flow a while back, but I thought I think it's very important um, to note that the fact that there is not a rich library of cannabis information um, make is showing proof of products that have been in the market, how long they were in the market, what the packaging looked like, what their claims on the packaging was, their analytics. There's this big void. And you said something interesting. You said, um, you know, this creates a sense of, um, you know, a lack of knowingness that is probably going to uh, go forward a generation as the old evidence comes out of the shadows, wherever it may be. And if there's not evidence in the past, the new body of work that is happening now with decreasing prohibition as it fills in the holes. And like a generation later, we'll have this stuff, you know, decided better for worse. But, you know, I spent most of my life as a business strategist and that sends up huge red flags for me (laughs) because so many of these businesses that are, uh, you know, getting high level capital investment and are, you know, IPOing as part of their value package, they're claiming IP and this IP is not settled. And what this tells me is that I love hearing you're laughing. What this tells me is that these, these value claims of these companies will be in question for a while and wildly increasing the risk that these companies need to overcome. I think that's true. Um, Although it's not, I, I would say that it's it's more true in some fields than others. Uh, if you're claiming something that that has the technology to have been around for a long time and just isn't documented, you've got to really be suspicious about whether that patent is valid. Mm-hmm. So you know something as technologically friendly as uh, can you make a liquid formulation? That's not. That's not very new. So liquid formulations have clearly been around for a long time, and it makes you wonder: Have these particular liquid formulations uh, can are they? How likely are they to be new? In other situations, though, you know there are really new um, fundamental technologies that are being applied to cannabis, and it's very unlikely that some new like let's. I'm not advocating genetic engineering, but let's talk about there's there's something called CRISPR. 
uh, which is a technology that lets people edit genes in, in living organisms and uh, change the genetic expression without actually putting in any foreign genes. And so if you have a technology that's as new as CRISPR and you have patent claims that are directed to some new beneficial use of cannabis that involves that, then you could, you could safely assume that um, you wouldn't need a long old history of, of prior art going back a few decades to establish whether that was patentable or not. You, you'd have uh, less of a likelihood that that existed in a, in a, in a previous um, industry that was kept in the shadows. So it is a function of what kind of invention it is uh, that, would, that would give you more or less confidence about the, the strength of someone's patents. And there's just one other thing I want to say about utility patents. Because these two patents are so far out there and incite such an emotional reaction and a, and a what-the-hell kind of reaction from people, it has, it has kind of created a bad name for all utility patents. And um, if, you, if, if you have a, a cultivar of cannabis that you bred yourself and that is special and it can do some great things and you know you originated it, and you're trying to get utility protection just so you can protect the seeds because that's the only way to protect your seeds if it's a high THC cannabis. A plant patent isn't available. A plant variety protection certificate isn't available. So it's a utility patent or nothing. Um, uh, hating on people who get utility patents of any sort is, I, I think that's a gross overinterpretation of the problem. I would liken these two patents to um, you know, 18-wheelers with 30-foot uh, trailers uh, rumbling down a school zone at, at 90 miles an hour. And if you don't like that, that doesn't mean that you can't like someone riding their bike through the school zone or driving a normal car at 25 miles an hour in the school zone. Just because they're all motor vehicles doesn't mean they're all doing the same thing, doesn't mean they all pose the same threat. And um, sometimes a utility patent is the only tool available to someone who just wants to protect what they actually created within a normal, appropriate scope that isn't overreaching. And because these utility patents have so offended people in the industry, there is, I think, a real backlash against what I would call very appropriate and necessary utility patents. Well, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, um, I'm a big fan of open source nearly everything, but it wasn't until I interviewed Reggie Godino on an earlier episode that I realized that open source is a good place to come from in the heart, but we need these pat we need good people to get patents and exert their patents just so that we can defend the heart of cannabis so it isn't all owned by folks who don't want to use it in the same way that that those of us who've been in the family for a long time want it to be used. I would agree with that. Yeah. So, all right. So, um, so let's go ahead and take our second break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some real brass tacks about how um, folks who are, are breeding and developing plant lines um, can play a little defense against these types of patents and, and stick their, um, you know, draw their line in their stands. So you are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is plant scientist and patent attorney, Dale Hunt. This message is for folks who grow cannabis. I'm talking to home growers, patients, and commercial growers too. I'm probably talking to you. 
When you plan out your next growing cycle, be sure to check out Humboldt CSI Seeds at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb Inspecta and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family have cultivated extraordinary Sensamia cannabis in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. Because of his lineage and the hard-earned experience that comes from growing up smoking and sifting large populations of cannabis plants in Northern California, the seeds you'll cop from CSI will be winning genetics based on longtime heavy hitters and updated and resifted to bring out new and exotic traits and better yields. Go ahead and ask around. Caleb, also known as Inspecta and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle, is a breeder's breeder. He reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways that you'll love as a toker and a grower, as well as offering you some surprises that will delight serious seed traders and cultivators. Humboldt CSI goes a further step and selfs all these chemovars so you know all the seeds will be female. These are not experimental feminized seeds. Humboldt CSI releases some of the best female seeds available anywhere, and it will show in your garden. Folks grew quite a bit of CSI Humboldt Genex last year here on Vashon Island, and everyone was pleased. The patients had beautiful female plants and didn't have to cull half of their garden as males. The folks growing for the fun of getting high grew colorful flowers with exceptional bag appeal and great highs. And breeders had seven out of seven females in a pack, which gave them a lot of phenotypic choices. Take a moment right now and visit HumboldtCSI.com. You'll find an up-to-date menu of both feminized and regular lines, along with photos and descriptions. That's HumboldtCSI.com. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes and custom terpene blends. True terpenes, isolated terpenes, and terpene blends are tested to the most demanding worldwide safety and stability standards. Terpenes from true terpenes are third-party tested, non-GMO, and food grade. They're triple distilled, making them the purest terpenes available in the world. With over a thousand terpene isolates, strain profiles, and terp flavors, you can be sure that true terpenes will have the perfect aromatics for your manufacturing goals. True Terpenes also offers custom blending so that you can match your company's marquee strains across all your product categories. While you can certainly simply just order terpenes and go right to manufacturing, True Terpenes also offers a wealth of manufacturing insight, best practices, and a willingness to help you break new ground with your product formulations. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service too, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for Terps before, you know how rare that is. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps that you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or beverage. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and our guest this week is plant scientist and patent attorney, Dale Hunt. So, Dale, now that we've scared the hell out of everybody during the first two sets, <laughs> let's then bring this on home, right? Because one of the things that I appreciate about um, chatting with you is that you're constantly looking for solutions for these um, challenges for breeders. Because 
Um, you know, the more I read your blogs and talk to you about the kinds of things that interest you, you know, I can't be the first person to recognize that um, you have you have made a bit of a path from being a straight up you know, patent attorney to actually being a bit of a cannabis activist. It's pretty <laughs> obvious what side of this that you are on while, you know, remaining clear headed and neutral. But I enjoyed talking to you the other day about, um, you know, what strategies are that you recommend for people developing, um, you know, clone only chemovars and seed sets to protect what they've got going on. Cause you know, clearly everybody cares a lot more about this since the phylos mess and people don't really have solutions. And, you know, from show to show, I mean, we talk about patents pretty regularly on this show and, and everybody kind of comes to the same point of, you know, we don't know how this is going to play out yet. There are no clean right answers because everything is in play. But the, you hold this unique seat where you are a plant scientist and also a patent attorney where you can kind of see the state of play and say, all right, we don't know how this is going to play out, but the best defenses that we can do today are ABC. And that's what I want to talk about because a lot of folks that are listening, they're putting their life's work you know, out into the world and, and they, and they don't want to get skunked. They especially don't want to be skunked by people don't have, that don't have the same heart that they have. So, so talking specifically about plant genetics and breeders wanting to protect their creations, what are the present best protections available for these folks? Well, one of the protections is actually free and I, and I wrote a blog about it. Um, uh, look up on plantlaw.com and look for the picture of grapes and, uh, I don't really remember the title of the blog, something about protection for your IP that is free and never expires. Um, and unfortunately, it only helps with, it only works with one business strategy. And that is, let's suppose you have a cultivar that you've developed and you love it and it's fantastic, and um, uh, but you either can't afford a patent or you just don't wanna go there. Um, if you're se- If all you're selling is flour and um, you're never going to sell a clone, then you can sell, um, you can, then the, the challenge you have is to just control whoever gets access to your propagating material. You can sell harvested material all day long. It's dried, it's cured, and um, no one can replicate your clone from the harvested material. Uh, if you control all the cloning, um, and control where all those clones go and who grows them, and you've got good agreements to govern all of that, then you might not need a patent. Um, the, the bad news of that is that even getting those good agreements in place with people uh, is going to cost some money. And then there's still some trust involved and some challenges when uh, you have to trust other people. And uh, that's why people, even even big companies that control well, and when I talk about big companies, I'm talking about like my grape clients and my my blueberry clients. They don't let any of their genetics out of their hands. They're vertically integrated, but they still get patents because if it does slip out, and they can't. There's, it's impossible to have a big organization, a big operation, and still have perfect security. If anything does slip out, they and and ends up in the market, they need to be able to have some recourse against whoever is using their genetics without their authorization. And um, if that's not someone you made a, made a contract with, 
then you can't sue them for breach of contract. And it, unless they're the ones that stole it and you can prove they stole it, you can't go after them for theft. But you can always go after them for patent infringement if they're propagating your plants without your permission. Mm -hmm. And you can prove the patent infringement with a DNA test. That gives me an opportunity to say one thing about DNA. A lot of people think you have to have a full DNA sequence or a DNA map or something to apply for a plant patent. It's not true. I also wrote a blog about that. Um, and I think it's titled something like none. That's how much DNA you need to, how much DNA information you need to apply for a plant patent. I've obtained, uh, counting international ones, I've obtained thousands of plant patents for my clients and we've never submitted DNA. Now, on the other hand, uh, the first time we had to prove uh, infringement in a really contested case in, in, with these grapes that, that I've worked with, we got a DNA test right away for that because that was the way to prove infringement. And the point is that you can always go get the DNA evidence. It can be helpful to have it in advance because then you don't have to show a chain of custody and everything. You can say, this is the same DNA uh, test that we submitted in our patent application. And our this accused uh, plant matches it completely, and so it's clearly infringing. But you don't have to have that DNA evidence to 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 get the patent in the first place. And then you just you just basically do a comparison of your patented uh, cultivar and the accused cultivar, and the DNA will make it open and shut. Um, so that's why, even though uh, people can have a viable business just based on agreements and on high security. Some people that have good agreements and also have high security still choose to patent what they have because it gives them recourse, a different kind of legal recourse against people who end up coming in and, and uh, using their stuff without permission. And they're just, you know, you don't have to prove theft. You don't have to prove a breach of contract. You just can prove that that they don't have a right to that, that they're using your plants and without your permission. Got it. Oh, so so got it. So so if if that is the uh, <laughs> if that is the business model that is most easily uh, protected, um, it's also like one of the least common <laughs> in in the scene right now, right? Folks who are growing their own uh, cultivar and are the exclusive people bringing it out on the market. Certainly, they exist, but certainly there's a hell of a lot more people who are bringing seeds to market. And that's probably going to be the bulk of people's concerns. So let's wade into that. All right. I'm glad you asked about that because that's when your choices are really different. Um, if you are commercializing seeds or selling seeds or or anything except except harvested except flour, and you want any kind of intellectual property protection, you're you really do have to um, either go with a utility patent to protect the seed to have claims that protect the seeds. Or if it happens to be industrial hemp, you can go through the USDA uh, plant variety protection system. But in any of those cases, um, you still have to have – you either have to exert perfect, flawless control over your plants and what's done with them. Or you have to have some kind of, some kind of uh, contracts or you have to have some kind of intellectual property recourse. And the problem is – you can't exercise that flawless control over your genetics if you're selling seeds. That's that's the whole point is you're putting them out there. Um, and so in this case, if you want to be selling seeds, you're either going to have people um, growing those seeds without permission or you're going to be able to get a patent on, on your seeds and at least restrict 
you know, they can buy your seeds, they can grow your seeds, but they can't use them for, to, for their own breeding. And that's a hot button because a lot of people really believe in the importance of open source uh, cannabis breeding. And I'm, I'm someone that supports that, not, notwithstanding the fact that I'm a patent attorney. I recognize that the industry itself, the community, is very passionate about sharing genetic resources. It's been a kind of an ethic within the industry for a long time. And those people who want to do that, it's not for everyone, but people who want to do that should be able to do it. And I, I, I caused a little bit of a stir by writing a blog that is, says why open source cannabis doesn't work and how to fix it. And so um, I definitely have a, uh, an, a legal analysis behind that. Right on. Um, so so let's, let's, let's get very specific. So let's say that um, I am a seed maker and I am breeding unique cultivars or at least ones that I consider unique. We'll have to talk whether or not they're unique legally or not. And I want to put my seeds out and I, I want to be the only person that can sell seeds that have got my name on it and and no one else should be able to breed with my seed stock unless I give them permission. Um, I'm guessing from the rest of the show today that that's actually a pretty high uh, high level of difficulty to secure that. But let's hear what you have to say. Well, it doesn't have to be difficult if you are if you're focused on um, if you're if you're willing to pursue a utility patent that isn't one of these overbroad 18 wheelers barreling down the school zone. It's it's a it's a nice friendly Subaru or something going 25 miles an hour. It's an appropriate uh, vehicle for protecting your invention that you limit your claims to the specific uh, cultivar that you placed on deposit, which would be a seed sample. And you say, I'm claiming seeds related to these seeds, seeds that are the same progeny of the same cultivar as the seeds that are on deposit. I'm not claiming anything else. I'm not using those just as an example of what else, uh, as an example of something typical of my claim. That is what I'm claiming. So first of all, that's a modest request. It's a modest scope of protection. You're only protecting the thing that you invented, not other things, pe- not things that other people might someday invent. And um, if you do that through utility patent, then you can you can get claims to seeds that are progeny of the of the plant of the plant cultivar that's on deposit. You can claim a method of breeding cannabis involving crossing. Um, one of those, one of your cultivar was something else. And so if you do want to be able to maintain that kind of exclusivity and you don't want to be um, in more of an open source model, then, then utility protection isn't actually, um, it's not inaccessible and it's not, it's not an overreach. It's the, that's the only available way really to protect uh, your seeds if they have um, over 0.3% THC. Well, if they make plants that do that. So I I understand how that works downstream from me if I was the breeder. But how does that work upstream? So, um, you know, just about nothing out there to breed with is a land race anymore, right? You know, Mm -hmm. most breeders are not going, you know, into these like original heritage countries and bringing back seeds. So let's say that let's say I'm a breeder and I'm going to cross you know, one seed that I bought from one breeder and another seed from another breeder. And I'm going to cross those and I'm going to make a whole bunch of seeds. And then let's say I do a sift of a hundred of them and I find my favorite two. Like how far away from the original two seeds do I need to get 
before I can patent it? Do I have to do I have to do something novel to them, or can I just take any two? I mean, can I just cross the Mac one to anything? I'm like, boom! I want to patent this. Well, like it or not, the the, the standard for novelty when it comes to uh, patents in plant genetics is really low. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's if if you're trying to patent a cultivar, you just have to show that it's new. Um, if your if your patent claim is limited to that cultivar, it's it's impossible for one cultivar to be obvious over another one. It's legally not possible, and so it's really all about the novelty. And if you think about the novelty, um, really, and this this sounds crazy, but it really is true. Every single seed ever formed in a cross is new and different from every other seed genetically. If you think about all of the genes that get shuffled in a sexual cross that results in seeds, there are no two that end up being genetically identical. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we've got all these different phenos. And, and so so would it be based on the short read uh, of the genotype or of the, of the genome instead of how it expresses itself as a, you know, in any particular environment? Yeah, I'm just thinking out loud. So so what I'm what I'm hearing here is that I can take any two seeds and if they are not already patented that you're not allowed to breed with them, I can take any two seeds and cross them at this state of the industry and suddenly I've got a novel chemovar and I can patent it. Yes. And um, one of the blogs on plantlaw.com is um, the title is how can I tell if my strain, I think I use the word strain there, how can I tell if my strain is new and different enough for patenting? And my answer to that in the blog is, if you made it and it's a new it's a new result of a sexual cross, it's by definition different and distinct enough for patenting, and you know that it's new. The question is always going to just be, is it worth patenting? Um, many things that that you produce are not going to be. You know, if you do a cross, you'll have thousands of seeds. Um, you'll grow many of those out and decide which ones have the phenotype that you want, and then you'll save. A, you know, a small handful of those is your special results of that cross. And you may do some more crossing and some more selection. But when you finally have something that you think is going to have commercial value for years, that's when you think about patenting it. And if you think it's going to have commercial value for years, then, you know, you're going to grow that plant. You're going to do some back crossing. You're going to try to stabilize the, the seed line as much as you can, try to get it as homozygous as you can without losing uh, all the traits that you're after. And when you have a stable seed line, that's probably when that's what you would probably want to try to commercialize, and that's probably the appropriate time to try to patent it. Um, and that is, you know, you you are going to if you're doing seeds, you do need to be able to say that the seeds of this particular cultivar are substantially say, stable and that they're substantially true to type. And so, you know, if you have a segregating population, that wouldn't even count as a as a cultivar per se. But but the the real question of is it new, it's it's new because every sexual cross is new, you know, and and is it distinct? Even you and your siblings are different from each other, even though you came from the same parents, and it's the same with every seed. Okay, um, but going into the future, as utility patents on seeds become more common, the the breeder is going to also have to ask does does the original breeder of this seed that I'm crossing already have an existing utility patent on it, which would restrict me from breeding it, right? 
That's right. Okay. And of course, if they want to assert their rights, they need to label their product. And so if someone is selling patented seed, there would be a patent number on the label. And that's when you'd have to respect the, the utility patent. Um, so if, if you don't see a patent on the label, chances are it's not patented. And even if it is, the, the patent owner isn't doing what they need to do to put the public on notice. And uh, you would have a defense to infringement. And, now, and, of course, if you if you later got notice and you kept breeding, that'd be a different different problem. Right on. I follow that. And so let's take that one more step farther. So if we want to lock down our genetics even further, um, I would think that the next step would be doing, um, you know, kind of a strategy like some of these seed companies are where. Uh, they are developing chemovars, and honestly, now no, they're not—they're not just clones. But but but, but where they're selling seeds in bulk to, for example, hemp folks, where they'll buy five thousand seeds, but it comes with a license that you won't breed or share. So right. that is that is kind of creating um, a safety zone for those seeds, but not involving the U.S. Patent Office. That's right. That's that's really creating a system where um, your recourse against someone who violates that is a breach of the agreement under which you sold them the seeds. Um, the problem with that is, so, you know, if I sell seeds that are restricted, I say you're allowed to use these seeds for um, growing plants to grow harvested material. Um, I, I, I can't stop you from breeding with these seeds unless, unless I only sell, the, maybe I sell that under terms where I say you're not allowed to breed with these seeds and your purchase of these seeds is an acknowledgement of an agreement between us that you won't breed with these seeds. Then if someone did go ahead and breed with those seeds or did try to um, sell you know, a second generation of those seeds without your permission and that was all in the contract, you'd be able to go after them for breach of contract. And again, that comes to the problem of what about the person downstream from that agreement? What if someone else gets their hands on those seeds and they have a defense of of not being a party to that agreement, not being aware of the agreement. And um, so, yeah, you can you you can have agreements like a shrink wrap license in the software industry that restrict what people do with seeds you sell. Um, but unless you can show that, that the person that, that accepted those terms when they bought the seeds is the person that is violating those terms, that's you know you're not you can't sue someone for breach of contract if they're not the party to the contract and that's the problem wow that that right there is such a messy thing to have it turn on right because <laughs> yeah. you know some of my favorite seed companies are licensing their seeds because the material is so unique and and i do, i actually believe they should be able to charge uh to to pay for the research and the significant part of their life that they put into developing them, but they can really only enforce it against the people they had the licenses. If, if, if somebody they had a license with gave it to a friend surreptitiously, they can only sue the person they had the license with, not their friend that took it and crossed it with something else. That's, I would call that a big gaping hole. It is, and that's, that's why people choose to plug that hole with a patent. And, um, you know, one of my sayings I use a lot is if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you're a patent attorney, you can fall into the trap of thinking the solution to every problem is a patent. And I don't want to sound like that. I, I try to learn what people want to accomplish and then help them accomplish that in a way that's most consistent with 
their needs and their goals and their budget. So I don't always recommend patent protection. But if you're working with biological organisms that that self-reproduce and that are so easy to um, reproduce in large quantities, uh, if you're if you're free to do so, um, not having some kind of a, a backstop of intellectual property rights just means that you've got to have much tighter control in other aspects of your business plan. There's just no no other way around it right now. And I, I, I'm advocating a, a new system that would change that, but but the current system just doesn't it doesn't give you recourse against anyone who's not a party to the agreements that you made. Great. And I'm glad that you mentioned your new system because this is where I want to go next. But before we do we do go there, um, we have talked a lot of vagarities back and forth. And I just like would like your bulleted action points for somebody who is listening and they are breeding their own seeds what is the best thing that they can do right now to protect themselves as this evolves? Just give me the short version so, so that they can write it down and have a task list. Um, first thing is to make sure you're, you're um, selling your seeds with some kind of restrictions on the label and that you make that sale as conditional as possible. Um, try to sell only to trustworthy uh, parties. And if you can't do that and you value those seeds and you think they'll have commercial value for a long time, the bad news is you really do need a patent and it needs to be a utility patent. Okay. And I think that that probably describes just about everybody in the seed game. So then what are the next steps they take to do that? And let me just, let me just amend that. If, if it's industrial hemp, then you have two options. You've got utility patent or plant variety protection certificate. But there are some reasons not to do PVP, including that there's an express exemption that permits people to breed with the seeds that they obtain that are protected that way. So it still goes back to utility patent. The steps are, if you want a utility patent, make sure that you uh, that you get an application filed um, within a year of the first uh, the first public availability of the, of the seeds or any part any any part of the plant. Um, so you've got to move relatively quickly. Make sure that you're working with someone that knows what they're doing. Uh, find out uh, how many plant patents they've filed before, or, or not even plant patents, but utility patents relating to plants. Um, and you know, just just make sure that you uh, are getting what you pay for when it comes to getting the legal advice that you need. Okay, so so let's talk about this new idea that you've put together for a a, a new spirited international convention that would protect. Uh, nearly all the people who are breeding cannabis plants, because um, it certainly got me excited listening to it. And it sounds like a really great way for uh, to, to bring everybody together for the good of the availability of the plant. And honestly, it feels a lot like open source, the more you and I talked about it. So, so go ahead and give us the, the elevator speech, if you will. Yeah. Um, I have uh, been an advocate. I've, I've, been sympathetic at least to open source and I advocate its use for people who want to use it. It's not for everybody, but the problem, the biggest problem uh, with open source in plant genetics is its contrast with, or is demonstrated by contrasting it with, uh, with computer software. Software open source works because software has an automatic copyright. The moment it's created, you don't have to apply for a copyright. The problem with open source in plant genetics is that there is no automatic right that exists upon creating a new genetic selection. 
you have to go apply for that, you have to pay for it. And so the, the analogy between open source software and open source plant genetics breaks down at this point where a, a copyright infringement is a form of recourse you can use against someone who never agreed to your, your the conditions of your open source software situation. But if you create an open source uh, seed sharing or genetic sharing community and someone is outside that agreement and you don't have underlying IP rights to assert against them, you don't have anything to assert against them because you can't go after them for breaching your agreement. They weren't a party to your agreement. And so what I'm advocating is uh, a form of plant breeders right that is very similar to a copyright and now copyrights exist upon creation of an original work because there there was an international convention or there still is called the Bern convention that was established in 1896 or 1886 i think and the the u.s i don't remember 86 96 whatever but the u.s joined it 102 years later and so as of that date uh, copyrights in the U.S. were automatically protected. I think it was it was 86 and 88. So in, in 1988, the U.S. finally joined the Berne Convention, and copyrights became automatically protectable as soon as you created an original work. Now, what I'm advocating is something very much like the Berne Convention for plant breeders, so that when you create an original uh, cross and you make a selection and you, you establish a cultivar, that you don't have to apply for any form of protection. It's already there. It's there like a copyright. And someone who violates that by um, illicitly obtaining and propagating your genetic selection uh, would be in violation just the same as someone who uh, illicitly obtained some software code and commercialized that. Uh, that's what I'm advocating. It's going to take some work, but I think there are enough people who would benefit from this and enough people who care about it that uh, – I don't intend for this just to be talk. So if um, if every single seed is unique and you're talking about giving everybody who's plant breeding default protection, how does that drill down to the uniqueness of every individual seed? That's a great question. And if you, uh, if you read the blog that I wrote about open source, um, <laughs> one of the headings is, my dad is such a pain, LOL. Now, the reason that's relevant is that Anything we ever write, anything we ever write that is original is protected by copyright. But that doesn't mean we commercialize, we do anything with most of those copyrights. Every email you've written today, um, and my example in the blog is everything my kids text on their phones practically is copyright protected, unless it's completely unoriginal, like my dad is such a pain, LOL. Um, that's not original enough to qualify for copyright because my kids were not the first ones to type that in a text, even if they type it a lot. <laughs> um, so the point is that there's there's a um, there's more copyright protected material out there in the world that's being created every second than anyone is ever going to do anything with in terms of of, of asserting their legal rights. But the fact that that protection is automatic gives you all kinds of latitude if you write a blog or if you write software or if you, you know, whatever, whatever kind of creation you, you, you do, whatever kind of creative activity that, that is protectable by copyright, you've got that just by having created it. And by analogy, you know, if you think about all the texts that people write, that might be analogous to a, a, all the diversity that is in a single batch of seeds. Um, every one of those seeds would be protectable, uh, would be, um, would be under the basically the, the the basic breeders right 
But what they choose to do with that is another thing. And how many pe- how many things do we have that are copyright protected that we never care to assert our rights over? But if something in there is really valuable, the difference between a text that you send and a book that you write, then you're going to have some rights that you do care to assert, uh, but you still don't have to go um, apply for those rights. Now let's extend that. Let's apply that to an open source system. If every breeder that puts something into an open source system already had a right um, to assert against someone who used their their genetics without permission, then an open source system would work because within the system you'd say, all right, um, we're going to share seeds under conditions. We've all got rights under these uh, these seeds, but we're going to share them under conditions that you will do. Um, you know, this and that, and you won't do this other thing with these seeds, or that if you do this other thing, let's say if you if you commercialize something that, that was derived from these genetics, that you have to pay something back into a fund that protects everyone from patent infringement litigation or something like that. So you can put conditions on the use of those seeds, and if everyone had protection of their genetic uh, varieties that was automatic, then anyone who illicitly obtained those seeds and did something that was outside the open source system, you'd have recourse against them, just like uh, people have recourse against uh, against a copyright infringer. Um, so it, it plugs the hole that exists. We talked about the fact that you can't sue someone for contract for breach of contract if they're not a party to that contract. But you can sue someone for breach of an intellectual property right without ever having a contract with them. That's a really interesting and engaging idea, the fact that if if every seed that is bred is automatically protected, it opens us up to be able to more casually share the seeds with other seed makers because we don't really have to worry about what they're doing with it. And so it's, it reminds me of that old phrase, fences make good neighbors. Well, it's like if everybody who's breeding already has got protections for their stuff, but people generally don't mind if other people are breeding with their seeds as well, then everybody kind of is this is on equal footing, which I think most is what most breeders want. I think most breeders just don't want their work usurped. Right. People recoil at the notion of having everything just just dripping with intellectual property because it's new to them. And it sounds like that's just overkill. But the real overkill, the real problem is the difficulty and expense of getting the intellectual property protection, because once you have it, you're free to do whatever you want with it, including just leave it there and not not assert it at all. Um, We're not we're not troubled by the automatic nature of copyright protection. I would say that plant breeding is at least as much a creative activity as writing is. Um, you know, certainly not not all plant breeding results are created equal and not all writing is created equal, but it's all protected by copyright. And it hasn't made, you know, planes fall out of the sky and and um, uh, disaster happen all over the place. So it's 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 a little bit foreign and it, in a way it's counterintuitive, just like you said, all of these rights that everyone have has would actually make it safer and easier to share what we have because it would it would give us a way to, to kind of sift between the the people who are willing to play by some some basic rules of respect and trustworthiness and still have some recourse against people who aren't willing to do that. Someone who comes in and, and takes what you've got and then commercializes it and and uh, does something you don't approve of or whatever, you've, you're going to have some recourse against them. 
All right. So, so I see one more big challenge to this. The first one, of course, being this, <clears throat> this, you know, keeping it in balance, protecting myself while wanting to share with you. And, and I, and I like your, I like your answer to that. But as we've seen time and time again, well-funded folks are, are just pushing low-funded folks to go to settlement and not really getting their day in court just simply because they can outspend them legally. How would a small person in your era or an underfinanced person in your system defend their automatic patent on their seeds? Well, um, that that kind of depends on uh, if if they're trying to assert their rights against uh, against someone who is who's using their seeds without permission. Um, that's a challenge because they're, uh, you know, the, uh, you face, you face different challenges when you're asserting your, your rights than when someone is asserting their rights against you. You, you basically, you've got to fund the, the litigation up front. And if the abuse is bad enough, then, um, you may be able to recover damages. Um, one thing that I've advocated, uh, in addition to this open source system, uh, which is more about defending against um, uh, abusive patent suits against defending people who are who are sued for infringing an abusive patent is uh, a system of mutual defense uh, and but that is about defending against um, being sued for an abusive you know an abusive overbroad patent uh, that we that the community has already come to the come to the conclusion that um, is invalid and should be fought. Uh, so I do advocate um, in a blog that I wrote called uh, Standing Up to Big Ag, uh, a mutual defense approach where it's kind of like NATO. You know, if you sue any of our members, we're going to band together and use all of our patents uh, to see if there's any of our patents that we own that we could counter sue against you for infringing uh, our patent. Um, that's better described um, in the blog uh, than we have time for in this situation, but basically it's a mutual defense approach. And um, we are actually, uh, I'm, I don't like to just write about things and not put them into action. Um, I am trying to form some kind of a coalition of united small cannabis companies and, uh, and individual breeders that can uh, create that kind of uh, mutual defense in the event that one of them gets sued for patent infringement. It's harder to um, put together a mutual uh, offensive approach just because um, uh, it's, it's, it's harder to insure against. It's harder for it to get insurance for that kind of um, outcome. But it, it could still happen. And I think depending on how you fund the open source system, you know, if, if the open source system has uh, – some kind of uh, fund that people who infringe it uh, have to, you know, if, if the, let's say the, the, the damages that come from an infringement of an open source uh, system, if those damages went into a fund that could then be used to further assert the rights against, you know, just the, the people who violate the system, that's a pretty sensible thing to do with, with uh, proceeds from an open source fund. But, um, those are really two different things. The mutual defense against offense against being sued for uh, infringement of an overbroad utility patent, 
is uh, kind of a, a separate institution, separate animal from the the open source uh, and open automatic rights approach. All right, I follow that. And so, so a lot. Please allow me to distill this down to see if okay. I've got this right. So, so what you're proposing is kind of like this 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 two part one two punch thing. On, on the first thing that we need to do is to set up an international convention so that there is a default setting that when breeders, and it sounds like you're talking about all plants, but since we're talking about cannabis, where where cannabis breeders, the moment they make the cross and they have resultant seeds, those are by default defended by a patent. And so that creates the protections that most everybody is needing. And then your second is let's pull these newly protected breeders together into some kind of cannabis breeders union and and call ourselves an organization and you know pay some sort of yearly fee that will go to litigation insurance so that if any one of us is um, having to defend ourselves, uh, we are able to turn on the turn to the insurance policy so that all of uh, all of we lesser funded cannabis folks are able to represent ourselves the same way that NATO, if one country gets attacked, everybody comes to their defense. Is that, am I close? That's pretty close. I would just, I would correct, not even correct. I just amend one thing that you said about, you know, the automatic protection for plant breeders. It wouldn't be a patent because patents get applied for and they get examined and they have certain rights. It would be more like a copyright that is, um, that, that is automatic and it's basically um, just a prohibition. It's not something you can write claims for and that you, that you, um, it, you know, copyrights are inherently, um, available, but they're, they're not as, um, I'd say they're not as usually, um, complicated or strong as patent rights per se. And so what I'm advocating for is a really basic breeder's right that, but that gives you some recourse against someone who would in, infringe your, your rights. Uh, all you'd have to do is just show that, yeah, this is your, this is your, pro, your, your selection, your, uh, um, the result of your breeding and that someone has infringed, has, has, someone's taken it, that the, the DNA matches and therefore you have a right to stop them from, from making further use of it. Um, in a way that would be very similar to a patent, but it would just be, I, I don't think you'd want to use the term patent because that implies that it's gone through this whole process of That's right where I was going. So it's not really a patent or a copyright. It is not a patent, but it's kind of like a patent, but it's not, and it's, and it's kind of like copyright, but it's not a copyright. It's some third thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm advocating the creation of a natural plant breeder's right okay. to the, the selections and, the, you know, the crosses and the selections that that breeder makes that would be equivalent to a copyright. It wouldn't be the same as a patent, um, but it would give the breeder the right to control what people do with that production, just the same as a, as a writer has the right to control what people do with his or her written work. You know, as, as you roll this out and you, and you start to make this real, um, you're going to have to find yourself uh, a new vocabulary, right? Because patent, the word, is not only not what you're doing, but it's packed with all of these expectations and, and such from people. And then it's also not copyright, and it's also not open source, and so what you're creating is an animal that we have not seen in cannabis so far. And I think, 
I think that you need some new vocabulary, man. <laughs> yeah, we do. And and but the the whole reason to do this is to facilitate open source. Um, it's to make it so that you you can have recourse against people who are not parties to your open source agreement. If they're if they're violating your open source terms without ever having agreed to them, it gives you a recourse, just like people have a recourse against copyright infringers. Um, that's the whole point of it. And there may be some other things that people could do with it, but the 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 main the reason I came up with this idea is that it it would it would make open source workable, and I want to see open source be workable. Uh, so it, it's it's explained in more detail in in the blog that I wrote about that. Um, and then in terms of the mutual defense fund, um, it is it would be really a group that purchases some kind of group litigation insurance. I've done some preliminary pricing on this, and I I don't have a strong enough commitment on the pricing to be able to quote it or anything, but the idea would be that, yes, you have a coalition that forms an organization that buys this group insurance and that the group insurance covers people who get sued for patent infringement so that they have just as big a, a patent a patent litigation war chest as the people who are suing them so that the size disparity goes away. And then there's also a mutual commitment by members of this organization that if they have a patent that this other that this that this um, opponent is is infringing that the defendant can use this other organization member's patent against them just and it is in, in a way analogous to NATO that you know you point your guns at me everybody on my team's guns point back at you and so we hopefully don't shoot each other we decide to find a way to settle our differences um, obviously this would need to be administered by some kind of a nonprofit uh, and um, but I think that uh, once once we had an idea of um, how many members were interested in that and what the insurance rates would be, then you basically uh, charge a fee that covers that plus maybe the cost of one administrator, and then you have a mutual defense that's workable. Um, it, it, it's not something that I, um, that I would uh, advocate doing on a for-profit basis just because we have so many trust issues in this industry already. If someone thought this was just a scheme to make money, uh, I don't think people would want to be part of it. But if we see that see it as um, an answer to the 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 balance the the imbalance of power between big cannabis or big ag and a bunch of small cannabis people who still want to be able to stay in business they don't want to have to consolidate they don't want to have to sell to a big company they want to be able to stand and and um, and do what they're doing and and not not be at the mercy of this huge imbalance of power that the way to do that would be to form a coalition that actually has teeth in it, that, that can provide a mutual defense in the event that um, some of these overbroad patents get asserted against one member of the community. So, Dale, just because um, I know you a bit, I know that this is actually kind of a activist kind of heart-taking thing that you're taking on. Um, and yet, um, most of the listeners, including me, you know, like we're stoners who know about <laughs> pipe dreams, right? And so um, what can you tell us that, that would encourage people to pay attention to what you're doing or think that this is reasonable, that this has come together, instead of just being a really great story to tell over a bowl? Well, I think the, the, um, the, the answer always has to be watch what people do and not just what they say. Um, do cut them some slack in terms of getting things done. Um, and if you're not sure whether they're real or not, talk to them and offer to help. 
And, you know, if someone, uh, if, if, if someone thinks that I'm floating these ideas just for fun or just to, um, give people kind of a, like a, a temporary pipe dream or something, talk to me, reach out to me, ask how you can help, because I, I do want to, um, I do want to turn these things into action. I have become a bit of an activist, even though I still run a law firm and have to pay bills and things like that. Um, a lot of what I do and care about the most is um, not really tied to anything that I can bill anybody for in my law firm. I just want to see things work well enough that everybody in this industry prospers and, and achieves their, their goals. Well, Dale, this has been great. And I really appreciate meeting an attorney who I find both personable or to find personable, skilled and on my side. And <laughs> usually I don't get all three in the same. So uh, so thank you very much for, for uh, spending your valuable time with us, uh, helping us get to the bottom of these two biotech and United Cannabis patents that people are talking about a lot, but didn't really understand very well. And kind of bringing us up to the state of the art or the state of play of where cannabis patents are today, because we really just want to protect ourselves. And it sounds like our best play is going to be to continually work together. So I've a, I'm pretty sure that we're going to have you back on again, uh, because this has been great to hear your experience and put so succinctly. So thanks a lot, Dale. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So if you want to follow up with Dale, there's two places that you can go to. Uh, if you want to interact with him about his law firm um, or to ask questions or get involved with the next steps of this international convention or uh, mutual support pact, um, you can go to his website at uh, plantandplanet.com, which I got to tell you is is now my new favorite um, law firm URL. <laughs> and then uh, you can also, uh, uh, clearly Dale was letting us know as we went along about his uh, his blogs, and I've spent a lot of time there already, and they are well worth it. Um, and they are detailed without being overly long. So you can go check out those blogs at plantlaw.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.